Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Richard Osijo, and this interview is being done in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Joining me today is Sarah Mayorga, Associate Professor of Sociology at Brandeis University. And today she's going to talk about her recent book, Urban Specters, The Everyday Harms of Racial Capitalism, a study of the stories that residents of working class urban neighborhoods tell about their lives and where they live under conditions produced by the system of racial capitalism and the possibilities of challenging this system and creating a different world. Sarah, thank you for this book and thank you for joining us. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Richard. Happy to be here. So I was wondering if you could start by just telling us briefly about your own professional backgrounds and how you came to work on this project and write this book. Sure. So um, I'm an associate professor of sociology, um, as well as core faculty in the Latin American, Caribbean and Latinx studies program here at Brandeis. Um, I'm also new department chair in sociology. Um, I graduated with my PhD um, from Duke in 2012 and have previously worked at the University of Cincinnati, which is where I first started this project. And um, I also worked at the University of Massachusetts, Boston for four years. Um, So I'm primarily a sociologist of race and racism urban neighborhoods and Latinx migration. Um, And I first set out to do this project um, after the completion of my first book, which was um, a multiracial neighborhood in Durham, North Carolina. Um, But this book, um, really, I wanted to focus on the experiences of or intersections of race and class in a a working class neighborhood. And I set out to identify two working class neighborhoods with um, different racial demographics. So I picked um, Riverside, which was predominantly white, and then Carthage, which is a multiracial neighborhood in Cincinnati. And what I really wanted to understand were what were the um, relationships between homeowners and renters in these neighborhoods, right? So really thinking about, um, you know, the racial context shaping these, like, uh, what we might consider, like, interclass dynamics. And what I actually found as I started to uh, interview residents was a really, really complicated picture, right? There was a lot going on, certainly immigration, um, which I, you know, I understood because that was one of the reasons I chose Carthage specifically because it's the neighborhood with the largest like Latin American um, migration um, population. Um, But it also was the opioid crisis. Um, There was gentrification going on downtown, which residents kept talking about over and over again, even though it wasn't necessarily happening to their neighborhoods. So um, there was poverty, there's, there's just a lot that um, residents were talking about and the picture was very messy for a while. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I kept kind of reading and thinking about this anti-blackness was part of what was happening. Um, and it was the, the framework and the, the theorization around racial capitalism that really allowed me to kind of start to see the forest for the trees here. Um, so even though the, book started off about this kind of race class comparison, um, I think it ended up in a you know, certainly related but different place than, than you know, I had originally imagined. Great. So yeah, let's go there. So you say that your goal in writing this book is, is really kind of simple in its way. You want to take seriously what residents said and how they make sense of their neighborhoods and their everyday lives. And you're especially interested here in the the different harms and problems they confront. And you frame these harms and 
the interpretations of the residents of those harms as consequences of racial capitalism. Now, this has become a pretty popular term, I guess, in recent years, in academia, certainly, in activist circles, even to some extent in some corners of the media. Could you please define it for us, explain how it works, and tell us uh, specifically how you're using it here in this book? Sure, yeah. So I see urban specters um, very much as a um, application of these broader historical and theoretical works to the case of Cincinnati, Ohio, right? Specifically these two neighborhoods that I talk about. Um, and I think there's a lot that I have learned from theorists of racial capitalism. Um, I borrow um, from, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who's a geographer. I think of uh, Garchi Bhattacharya's uh, work. Um, they're a sociologist, um, you know, amongst uh, Laura Pulido, who's a, also a, a geographer. Um, and so how are folks thinking about racism, capitalism, and place um, in particular? And so the way that I think about and, and talk about racial capitalism in this book is not just that there's a system of racism and a system of capitalism, but really about how does racism facilitate capitalist exploitation, right? So really thinking about the interworkings of these two systems. And that's what I think racial capitalism really offers us that's, that's powerful, particularly when we're thinking about cities and urban contexts. Um, and so part of what I really tried to do in this book was, okay, we have these theorizations of racial capitalism, but I wanted to kind of ground them in particular processes. Um, and so I highlight underdevelopment, private property, and security as kind of like these three broader um, structural processes, really, that have produced harms in these neighborhoods. And I connect them and trace um, their lineage to uh, what I call these urban specters, but really are just like local ideologies, right? It's the the local ways in which residents are trying to make sense of their lives. So when residents, for example, over and over kept talking about the neglect that they were experiencing at the hands of the city, at the hands of landlords, at the hands of, of a variety of actors, I connect it and trace it to this theory of underdevelopment, right? That it's not just that downtown is developing, but it's developing at the expense of the development elsewhere in the, in the, in the city. Um, and so um, that that's really what I'm trying to do here is kind of ground racial capitalism in a case, but also bring specificity to that, right? So when we talk about racial capitalism, what do we mean? But also what does it mean specifically here in Cincinnati? Yeah, thank you. The, the, it's a novel way to use racial capitalism, I think, because you're both explaining the conditions that these residents confront uh, in their neighborhoods, and also you're using it to explain the explanations that they give for the harms and the interpersonal circumstances that they encounter. So uh, before we get to that, and before we get to those specters you just identified, tell us a bit more about these two cases uh, Riverside and Carthage, these working class neighborhoods in Cincinnati. So you said how both are historically majority white neighborhoods. Today, Riverside uh, still predominantly white, but undergoing some changes while Carthage has become more multiracial. And then we have just the larger city of Cincinnati, this Midwestern city that's undergone you know, the same macro level processes that other American cities have undergone in the 20th and 21st century, segregation, suburbanization, the industrialization, disinvestment, followed by this uneven reinvestment and this uneven redevelopment and gentrification. So, yeah, if you could please give us some, um, you know, some of the specifics of life 
in these neighborhoods, why you why you selected these neighborhoods? You already talked about that a little bit. And you know, what were some of the major changes occurring around Cincinnati that impacted life in these specific neighborhoods for these residents? Yeah. So like I, I mentioned before, I chose these um, neighborhoods because I was looking for two neighborhoods of kind of similar class composition where I could really kind of study uh, different racial demographics. Right. Um, and what's also important to keep in mind in Cincinnati is that neighborhood sizes range radically. Right. So you have these like ginormous neighborhoods that um, and then uh, kind of smaller ones. So Carthage and Riverside are, are uh, more um, are, are closer in size, and, and they're certainly on the smaller scale in terms of uh, some of the outliers that we have in Cincinnati. Um, and racial, dem uh, like I said, racial demographics, or like you said, rather, racial demographics historically are similar, um, both historically white um, working class spaces. Um, Riverside has experienced a, a great amount of white flight, particularly from white um, middle class um, folks and so uh has uh, just an incredible amount of this investment right like doesn't have a grocery store um folks talk to me about how you know like when i asked them like where did they go grocery shopping they would have to leave the neighborhood and um you know if you are a working class person with a car that is you know a quick seven minute drive potentially up to delhi you know the neighboring town if you need to rely on public transportation it could be a multi-hour excursion on the bus right because the bus routes were were very um sort of sparse and would run um because the, the line that would run in riverside was running across town from the east side to the west side um that's also another really important part of the riverside identity is that it's part of like quote unquote West Side Cincinnati, right? Which um, sort of stereotypically is understood as, um, you know, white working class Catholic German um, heritage, right? Um, and also seen as a particularly insular. Um, and there certainly is also um, folks with Appal Appalachian um, uh, heritage, but that was less so um, within the folks that I talked to. And it, it sounds like, and I talk a little bit about this in the book that um, folks talked about Appalachians um, less so as themselves part of the community, but more so as like references to other or other people in the neighborhoods or um, or surrounding areas. Um, and so Carthage is, I think, similarly experienced white flight, but um, also um, which, you know, Cincinnati experienced that large, right? Sort of like a, a loss of, of, of white um, residents. Um, but in Carthage, you also have seen an increase in black residents and also Latinx residents. So um, Cincinnati does not have a large Latinx population. I think it's just a few, um, like uh, like two or 3% uh, um, population of the, for the city at large. Um, but Carthage itself, um, I, I, um, I should have written these numbers down, but I think it's about between 15, 20% of the neighborhood itself is actually Latinx. So um, it uh, has Latinx resta uh, restaurants. Um, one of the churches um, has Spanish language masses, right? So there, I, I think very much is a presence of the neighborhood. And so that was one of the things that kind of drove me also to focus on Carthage um, is sort of my long my kind of long-standing commitment to understand the experiences of Latinx migrants in general. Um, so yeah, Carthage is certainly, if we were to compare the two, is is bustling. There's a lot of, you know, foot traffic, you know, much, much more regular bus routes, um, a lot more folks on the street, if you will. Yeah, no, there's, it was interesting reading about 
these two places and how they're changing. So let's get to the specters that you mentioned earlier, these, these local little kind of place ideologies. The first one that you write about is neglect. And you found that residents often used neglect-related terms to describe their neighborhoods, like they would talk about areas that that need attention or have been forgotten. Uh, that's how they made sense of uh, the surroundings. So, how did you? How did they use uh, this specter of neglect to make sense of their lives? How did they? Uh, who did they see as? kind of to blame for neglecting them? Where did they place blame? And you know, what did your what did your analysis identify as a, a missing element in their interpretation of their neighborhood? Yeah, good question. Um, so I will say that neglect is one of the arenas in which, I mean, I had originally set out to do a comparison. So I was very much ready to see Carthage and Riverside having totally different experiences and having very different stories that they were telling. Um, and what I really came away with was just the consistency in the narratives, um, which was surprising. Um, and so neglect was one of the ones where I really was like, okay, this is a story that's traveling across place. And um, one of the areas in which there was, again, consistency across both um, both sets of residents was in relationship to downtown, so over the Rhine um, neighborhood. So those of you who may or may not be familiar with Cincinnati may know over the Rhine because it was the um, location of um, uh, uprisings in 2001 after the murder of Timothy Thomas by um, Cincinnati police officers. Timothy Thomas was um, the 15th unarmed Black man to have been killed by Cincinnati police over a six-year period, um, and it led to, um, you know, a, a, a three-day sort of uprisings located over the Rhine. There was a citywide curfew. The U.S. Department of Justice opened up, um, uh, you know, um, a, a, a case to study, like, what is happening in Cincinnati, um, and, and so that is very much sort of the backdrop of over the Rhine. After the fact, over the Rhine now has completely gentrified. Um, there has been uh, a focus on developing it in regard to its historic German um, sort of heritage, right? So um, uh, alighting, like it's more recent um, uh, residents, particularly who are, um, who are poor and Black. Um, and folks in Riverside and Carthage were talking about how their neighborhoods were on the decline because folks who used to live in over the Rhine, right? So sometimes naming black people and sometimes not. Um, and that these were, um, that these residents were pushed out by the city, pushed out by elites um, because they wanted to have access to over the Rhine. And so now their neighborhoods were on the decline because um, they have these new residents from, from OTR. So it was like a twofold neglect, right? It was a neglect to say, we're not getting the investment that Over the Rhine is getting, but also the people who are being pushed out of there who ruined Over the Rhine are now coming to ruin our neighborhood. What was really interesting is when I interviewed people and asked them where they were coming from, you know, I would ask them for kind of their other mobility history within Cincinnati. Very, very few people mentioned living in Over the Rhine. So that sort of made my sociological spidey sense, to, you know, um, rise to say like, okay, people have this very clear story about what is happening that doesn't actually bear out in my data. Um, so what is happening here? So for me, the story of neglect was very much a way of trying to make sense of capitalist development and underdevelopment, right? Um, and and I so I think 
this is when I talk about urban specters, it's not just um, or, you know, when we think about ideologies, I, I'm very much inspired by Stuart Hall's work, where like there is a materiality here, right? It's not just a, a, a fiction pulled out of thin air, but it's based on an interpretation of an actual material reality. Um, and so I, I think neglect is a really good example of that, that they are pointing to like actual disinvestment and, and you know, capitalist decision making, right? I, I spend a few um, pages in the book talking about the decision or the uh, for the Cincinnati streetcar, right? And just like the millions of dollars invested in this like three mile loop and, you know, sort of juxtaposing that to the experience of Riverside residents, which I already mentioned of having to wait hours to be able to go to the grocery store, right? So um, it's very much this investment with middle-class people or upper-class people in mind, whether or not they actually live in Cincinnati, right? It's very much this kind of, um model of if you build it, they will come. And, you know, at the at the cost of like, there are actually existing poor and working class people who need resources here now, right? Um, so, so that is, you know, how I was really trying to think through the urban specters metaphors, like taking seriously what people are saying, like they are identifying processes, they are identifying ways in which they are being harmed. So let me like, trace out to see how this is actually working. Um, but then also pushing back a little bit on some of the interpretations, right? Which is um, often, even with the identification of capitalist exploitation, there was also a reliance on anti-Blackness, right? So very much still this story about who's ruining their neighborhoods um, and, and who is you know, deserving of resources, right? So they, it, it, these two things are tangled together. And for me, that's why the racial capitalism frame is so effective it's because it's not just about capitalism it's about how racism helps facilitate that so it's like what don't you understand about or what don't we understand about capitalism and how it actually is functioning and who's actually being harmed um when we rely on like racism as like a short um a shorthand yeah no it's it's a it's a really nice theoretical move on your part to bring Paul in and by doing so, you can reveal what those material foundations are uh, behind the interpretations people have of, of where they live. So this, let's get to the second specter then, right? Which really builds from this first one. So if these neighborhoods have been neglected as these, these residents feel that they have been, then this opens the door for the problems to come in, uh, which they identify more commonly as uh, trash, as they put it. So residents use trash talk uh, to find a place to uh, put some of that blame for the stigma that their neighborhood is now experiencing, the more spatial territorial stigma uh, that they their, their neighborhood has acquired from being you know, neglected or, as we know, victimized by uh, underdevelopment. So, you know, what are the ways that residents employed this idea of trash in their neighborhoods? And, you know, by understanding the the underlying reasons uh, behind this understanding, how could we imagine different ways of combating territorial stigma? Yeah, great question. Um, so, yeah, trash was repeatedly used both to define or identify actual trash on the on the streets, right? Um, but more often to describe people, right? Um, and when I kind of pushed people to be like, oh, okay, can you tell me more about that? Like, what do you mean by trash? Um, there were a few things that were identified, right? So it was drug use, it was renting, um, 
and um, those, those are two of like the, the common uh, kind of um, behaviors. Also things like parenting style were brought in occasionally. So it was very much this like distinction process, right? About like who is good and valuable and who is, um, you know, ruining this place. And so for me, the trash specter is very much like you, like you said, like a maneuver to combat territorial stigmatization, right? Like I think residents had such a clear sense that their neighborhoods were looked down upon both at the city level, but by other residents of Cincinnati, right? That they were not, um, uh, you know, sort of the elite neighborhood. So here again, there was a construction, particularly for folks in Riverside of like the, the East side as a more, you know, upper class elite um, white space versus the West side as a more uh, white working class space. Um, and that they were certainly, um, that, that that distinction was was one that mattered and that they felt acutely. Um, and so it was the, the trash um, specter, I think was a way of saying like, our place is good. Like, this is ours. We, like, I lay claim to this place. I'm proud to be from Riverside. You know, I'm proud to be from these areas. Um, and the reasons it has gone down is because of these, like, people from the outside, right? So it was very much um, this this construction of insider outsider, but of course, when I like you know interrogate and push on this like construction, it it, it falls apart. It's not actually about insiders and outsiders, right? Um, because they would also, as they're describing trash, talk about people that they've known all their lives who you know are in the throes of drug addiction, you know, who are um, engaging in petty theft. And so when I ask like do we know people who are doing this? They're like, oh yeah, that was my, you know, wife's, you know, schoolmate. And she's known them since she was in elementary school, right? So this, again, this um, construction of insider outsider was was less about like, um, less of a hard line, but more of a a, almost construction of self, right? Um, And construction of place. Um, And I, and what was interesting to me is that renters were like a key line that both Carthage and Riverside residents drew between like, you know, trash or, or good people, um, but even renters themselves. So re- renters in Riverside in the Section 8 housing complex that I, where I interviewed a lot of folks, which is a predominantly black um, population in this complex, um, they also use trash <laughs> and this sort of distinction amongst themselves, right? To say like, actually this Section 8 housing complex is a good place with good people. It is those folks over there who are the ones causing us problems, right? And often they were drawing on, you know, um, young men who are invited guests who are not actually residents as the ones who are creating problems and bringing those in. So again, I think there's something really interesting here about how people are trying to define their place as having value. Potential was also another common theme that I think is very much wrapped up in this idea of trash, right? That these places had potential, that they were worthy of investment, that the city was um, doing wrong by them by not seeing that potential and investing in them. Um, and they were trying to make sense of that, I think, through this trash moniker. Mm, yeah, I, I think it's a, that's a, it's a great chapter. It's very vivid to me um, in the way you unpack this term that can mean something so simple, but is, is actually far more complicated. Now, let's get to this final specter in a chapter on security. And uh, to me, I think readers will find this chapter the most kind of compelling. Um, uh, Maybe it's, I I did, maybe that's uh, my own reading of it. Uh, So in this chapter, you show how 
you know, residents use this, this specter of security to make sense of police and policing in their neighborhood and in how they manage uh, their feelings of fear, fear of crime, their assessments of crime in the neighborhood. And you make this really novel distinction uh, between security and safety and how the emphasis on security through policing can, in fact, normalize a lot of the harms that they're uh, fearful of in their neighborhoods. And they could actually then weaken their sense of safety, which is probably more important than having something like a, a formalized uh, form of security. So talk about this for us, please. Tell us, you know, how, how did you see this just unfold uh, among yeah. residents in Riverside and Carthage? Yeah, so I um, I will say this chapter is absolutely inspired by the work of abolitionist Mariam Cabo, that security, safety, distinction, and I, I certainly cite her throughout the entire book, um, it changed the way that I understood what was happening, right? Um, and I think allowed me to, this is, I think, is the chapter where um, the specter or the, the specter of security because um, in the other chapters, when we talk about underdevelopment, when we talk about private property or neglect and trash, um, there were still residents who are kind of pushing against it. Um, but in this policing chapter, the overwhelming kind of dominance of the security frame was was really striking. Right. And people talked over and over again about how the police were failing them. Right. They did not return calls in a timely manner. They did not care about their neighborhoods. Um and over and over and over again, when I asked them what it is that they think would would th that their neighborhood needed in this area was more police, more police, more police. It was really kind of striking, right? Um, and one of the things that I tried to unpack in the book is like even in the face of policing's failures, right, where people are not getting crimes um, solved, they are not getting resolutions necessarily to their conflicts. They are still saying. Um, that they want more police. And so it's this kind of, um, uh, you know, interesting construction of even that, that it, it's, you know, I, for me, it's like, a, it's a function of ideology, right? It's like, how do you have a, a like a, a job, like a, a like a police um, force where they are repeatedly failing at their job, but then sort of the solution is to just give them more and more money, right? Like that, it, that's a, an interesting um, sort of uh, thought process. And so I was really trying to kind of unpack that in this chapter. Um, and so for me, the safety framework is really helpful because it pulls us out from thinking about policing just as like protection from the bad people, right? Um, and really thinking about well, what are the things that residents need to thrive, to feel secure, to feel comfort, right? And that they're really living um, in a place where they can breathe easy, right? Which I don't think is the way that many residents would describe living in Carthage or in Riverside. Um, and so, um, so that's really what I tried to trace out here. And part of it too is like once we kind of zoom out and think about um, safety outside of security, then we're also able to understand the ways that police themselves also cause harms in communities, right? And so rather than sort of take the harms of policing as something that we must accept, a focus on safety allows us to imagine a different way forward in which those harms are also taken seriously. 
Yeah. Well, thank you. It's, it's, uh, you definitely cite all the folks and it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really refreshing, um, to a really refresh, refreshing analysis with the theoretical insight. Uh, so, okay. So in the face of these harms of racial capitalism that you've explained through these specters here, the, uh, underdevelopment that gets interpreted as neglect, the, a system of private property that leads to these insider-outsider distinctions and the presence of large police forces that ends up allowing people to confuse safety with security or security with safety. Um, you know, you, you then you show how residents, they often react with a, a set of norms that target specific individuals for being responsible for the problems they see not recognizing, talking about these structural conditions, but not recognizing them as structural, they they then end up reinforcing uh, these structures. But you also find some seeds of hope, which I think is a, a really compelling part of the book, these kind of possibilities of alternatives to racial capitalism and its harmful outcomes from these very same people and places that you studied. So what are the norms that you found these residents using and how do you see opportunities for positive change? Yeah, so I the norms that I talk about um, are respectability, anti-Blackness um, and um, surveillance. Um, and so I... Um, and thinking about, okay, so we have these ideologies, we have these broader systems. So like, how does this actually shape like interactions and behavior um, that residents are, uh, you know, engaging in with each other, right? Um, and so the respectability part, um, for example, I talk about uh, the ways that, you know, working class residents, um, residents of color, right? Um, were, and, and people obviously can be both, um, uh, and poor residents, both uh, white and non-white residents, uh, were trying to, or were demanded of, like, performing this, like, goodness, this respect, this this worthiness um, that I think was, um, you know, ended up undermining, um, it was sort of like an individual level response to what is like a broader structural problem, I guess, is another way of, of framing it. Um, and um, I think like for so I, I'm like how much should I say about each norm? But I guess I'll focus on anti-blackness because I feel like this one's really effective or really powerful. Is that we think uh, like anti-blackness shapes interactions even when black, black people are not around, right? That's one of the things that very much stood out to me, especially in Riverside. So one example is of an elderly white woman who has a, and this is being reported to me by um, the the new white neighbor, right? So he's like, I moved in. Um, to this place that my elderly neighbor comes over and the first thing out of her mouth is like you know i was worried that you were going to be a black person um and then he sort of laughs and is like oh you know no, no you you know don't worry about it or you're going to be fine or something like that um and so while we might just take that as like this you know kind of racist interaction it served as the this foundation for what became a very intimate relationship between these two people, right? Like he then offered to mow her lawn. She would bring over lemonade. He, she invite, and you know, um, introduced him to all of her family in Riverside, right? So it was um, here we see that anti-blackness was not just the norm and expectation, but how it also then solidified the relationships between some white people. Um, and so that that was something that I that I thought was 
um, really important to kind of trace that it's not just about what people are saying and it's not just about what the city is doing or these broader structural problems. It's also then how does it then shape like the everyday lived experiences of residents? Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up sort of this, you know, these abolitionist possibilities that I highlight throughout because for me, it was really, really important to say like, yes, these are like structural conditions. Yes, things are difficult. Yes, this is what it looks like in the face of all of this. But people are also pushing against this and trying to build different worlds and ways of interactions and different types of relations outside of this, right? Um, and so like one example that I give is particularly around policing is like in Riverside, I had white older residents talking to me about how one of the wonderful things about the neighborhood is that they're able to stand up for one another and you know protect each other from these broader harms and they give the example of this you know teenager from many many years ago whose family i guess had a, a long criminal history and then he became involved in um or was accused of a crime and apparently you know like 50 to 60 residents came together and sort of showed up for him in court saying like we are responsible for this person like please give him a chance do not put him in jail we will you know We'll, we'll hold him accountable. And, 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 you know, the story they tell is of a complete turnaround. And now he's like an integrated part of the community. She, you know, I think they sort of reported that he will do anything for anybody here. Um, and, and there was a lot of pride around that ability to do that, right? So I think that's a really good example of thinking outside of like a, a carceral or like security system that, all, you know, we, to put people behind bars is the only way to keep people safe. When in reality, um, what abolitionists and others have shown us for years is that these connections and these relationships are where true safety lies. Um, and that doesn't mean people have to be best friends, right? But it does mean that you show up for each other um, and that we understand one another, right? And really understanding what people need. And it's this mutual exchange rather than this sort of like charity model or, you know, this idea that um, that some people have a lot that and, and some people don't, right? So I think it's it's, for me, highlighting these other ways of being that already existed um, and that residents themselves were doing was a it was a really important part of the story. Yeah, there's going to be readers will find like that restorative justice kind of model you just outlined, and a lot of other examples uh, in the text that I think readers are going to pick up on and uh, be able to kind of chew on a little bit. Really, very insightful. Uh, so before we wrap up, I just want to ask about writing and thinking and how our writing and thinking gets shaped. So your your projects are really excellent example of how you started with one focus and one set of expectations. You wanted to do a more comparative analysis. You thought there would be some clear differences between how residents spoke about their neighborhoods, but then it ended up being something very different and you had to take your data in a different direction. Now, I want to hear your thoughts on, on how that happened for you and how empirically informed it was or how theoretically informed it was. But something else I was thinking of is how you conducted this research in Cincinnati and then were living elsewhere when you wrote most, if not all of it. I don't know. You can tell us more about that. I'm, I'm always curious to hear, especially for qualitative work, uh, if that distance of time and space presented you with some some benefits for removing yourself from the actual people and places that you were studying to kind of open the space up for some of these 
new theories and new concepts to kind of come in and help you to kind of make sense of the data that you had collected elsewhere. So anyway, I'm curious to hear your, uh, you know, recollection of what that process was like for you and how you got from A to B. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think anyone who has done any writing knows that, um, it's so done in community, right? Like we can't produce books just on our own. And so, I mean, I wrote this book front to end over three times, right? So you are reading this final version is the third way of me trying to make sense of what was happening. I just kept getting it wrong. Um, And I didn't know it was wrong. It was, you know, and sharing it with other people, people are like, this just doesn't make sense like this, or, you know, maybe they, maybe I'm being too harsh. It wasn't quite that, but I think they were just like, they weren't sold on it. And I, and I think for me, one of the things that was really interesting was like um, uh, really like focusing on the data and what are the data, you know, data don't speak, right? Certainly I know that, um, but really what, it, what are the stories that are there um, and allowing them to shine and then having the theory sort of be a part of that, right? Rather than having like, well, this is the theory and these are the examples of that. I think it was allowing the stories and their messiness to kind of come to the fore that then actually allowed me to present a cohesive kind of narrative, right? Or at least a coherent one. Um, whereas I think before there were just so many little things I was focusing on. It's like, I just couldn't see the forest for the trees. Um, and to be honest, I had to do so much reading. Um, I'm trained as a sociologist of race and racism. And I had to read a lot about capitalism. I had to read about policing. I had to read about the opioid crisis. I had to read about stuff that I just didn't know um, because otherwise I just, you know, I wouldn't have been able to write this book. So this is very much a post-tenure book in in the sense that um, I just needed the time and space to do it. I started data collection in 2014. So nine years later is when the final product of this book came out. Um, And I know academics get a bad rap for we take forever to you know produce our work but I also think there's a beauty in being able to take the time to like make sure that what you're saying is actually what you want to say um, and that you're also doing right by the people who gave their time and their experiences to share with you so I think I for me it's like I really I didn't want to write a pathologizing book I didn't want to write um, a book that was that wasn't an apologist, you know, sort of account either, right? Like I really wanted to take what residents said seriously um, and understand it from their point of view and also bring in these broader macro um, considerations. So, you know, doing that work is is hard. It's time consuming, um, but it was very much, um, I think in exchanging with other folks that I was able to kind of pull out like, okay, this is working. How do I keep pulling on this? And um, so I'm grateful for, for all the friends and, and colleagues who who read different versions of this. Um, you'll see I have a very long acknowledgement section to thank everyone. <laughs> oh, thank you for that reflection. It's a question I, I ask myself a lot of um, how I got from one place to the other and what that was like. So, uh, so you've been very generous with your time here. Uh, I recognize this is a bit of a mean question because you just finished a book you just talked about it. It's great. You're going to be promoting it. But can you please tell us, what are you working on now? This is the what's next question. What have you done for us lately question? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually do have another book project um, and it's coming out in May. Um, and this is kind of like a surprise project that I 
was so and um, so grateful to be invited to work on with Elizabeth Corver Glenn. Um, so it's called A Good Reputation, um, How Residents Fight for an American Barrio. Um, it's coming out from Chicago um, Press in, in May. And um, so to give you kind of like the short story, Elizabeth did the data collection several years ago um, and then invited me in to work, you know, on producing the book project. So it's this really kind of interesting ethnographic, you know, collaboration where um, we both were able to like redo the analysis together, think about it. We revisited her field site um, and, and re-interviewed a couple of folks. So, um, but the, the crux of the story is we focus on neighborhood reputation um, to really think about the question of this, you know, high poverty, um, predominantly Latinx neighborhood in Houston, Texas called Northside, um, that folks were kind of assuming uh, would gentrify and it hasn't, right? And so we're kind of posing that as like an interesting question of well, why didn't gentrification happen? And what is it? Um, and, and really we're focusing on this idea of conflict that it's like, if we study conflicts about um, Northside's past, present and future, like what do we better understand about um, how neighborhood reputation is is, uh, is wielded to, to kind of um, further particular points of view and aims. And so I think for us, it's really pushing against this idea of like homogeneity, particularly when we think of high poverty places and places that are um, uh, Latinx or, you know, um, uh, made up of one group. So I, I think um, I'm excited for us to, uh, for folks to get a chance to read that. Um, and it really was a dream to, to work with her on that project. Wow. Okay, great. So you're busy. <laughs> uh, been busy so congratulations on this book congratulations in advance on the next book we'll have you and elizabeth on again uh sometime next love year that. yes that would be that would be lovely uh so thank you thank you for joining and best of luck for the rest of the semester and with the book promotion thank you you too